I was willing to give up a lot of the things that made me me in order to be in alignment with it because that was what I thought was the truth. You're listening to Out of the Woods, a podcast that showcases stories from people who once strongly believed in something. Maybe it was a religion, an ideology, even a community. And ultimately, they decided to leave because it was kind of cultish. Today, we're hearing from my friend Poplar Rose. Poplar and I met, I think it was like 2017, in the world of internet witchcraft. Um, We both were running witch businesses. So they used to write for a site called Little Red Tarot, and they ran a business called Witch Cabinet. And it was through Witch Cabinet they ran a 12-week course on boundaries called Hawthorne Heart. It was in this course that they um, experienced something that led to um, to them, in a way, kind of hitting a, a really rock-bottom point and a crisis of faith in, in social justice. Um, this came after experiencing two back-to-back call-outs and the stress of these coupled with moving to a plot of land in the forest exposed to the elements led them to shut down their business for the last two, two and a half years or so. So in this episode, they share their story of the before, um, their social justice activism, their relationship to yoga, um, and then the the during um, while the call-outs were happening, and then the after, the aftermath, as well as... Um, getting themselves getting themselves uh, back to somewhere different. And as a heads up on this episode, there is mention of active suicidal ideation, so just be aware of that. But um, I'm gonna, gonna let you get to it. So I think the first question I'm gonna ask is, um, how did you get involved with toxic social justice culture? Where did this start? And is that the term that you want to use? Well, yeah. I mean, even that, there's a lot of complexity in that because social justice, for me, well, I'll answer your question like sort of directly. I, as a teenager, actually my whole life like and you if you ask my mom about this like she says that like my entire life my whole childhood like I always was very concerned about things being fair and I would ask a lot of questions and I was very inquisitive and I wanted answers to things and my mom was a social worker before I was born in Vancouver's downtown east side and my dad was a jazz musician environmental activist like eventually later he went on to work in marketing and we butted heads a lot (laughs) but both of my parents like you know had a sort of liberal view and in some ways an anti like my dad is very interesting because he's he works in marketing but he's very much like an anti-capitalist in in certain ways so I was yeah raised to kind of be critical about this stuff and I love to read and 
in high school, like I dealt with a lot of bullying. And so I was really battling with like conforming to the norm and then breaking out of the norm in various ways. And so when I graduated from high school, I went to Cambodia where my great aunt lives. And I lived in like an orphanage and an AIDS hospice for a month. And then shortly after that, I started volunteering with Greenpeace. So both of those experiences for me were very validating of like basically how global capitalism and environmental collapse like function. And so, and then I went on to like continue to have like my work always be involved with these concepts in some way or another. So, and it wasn't always toxic. Like it was revelatory. It was like the, when I joined Greenpeace, I remember on the one hand being like, these are my people. Like I felt like I got to go to summer camp and like genuinely all the people would be my friend, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but then at this other hand, I also felt like, you know, because I was pretty pro-choice because my mother like raised me to be very pro-choice. And I remember being in this Greenpeace gathering and being like, all these people are approaching this with the same fervor as the pro-life people, you know, like, and I recognized even then that the emotional root of it was like very similar in its energetic frequency. So it's not always toxic. Like I still do social justice work in my life now. Um, but yeah, it was definitely like as a teenager that I started like getting involved in it in like a sort of more institutionalized way. And shortly after that, it became like my paid employment for the first time. Yeah. And you went to school, right? Like you have a, a degree in women's studies. Is that right? I went to, so I, I went to college initially and I kind of bounced around between psychology, which was what my mom studied to thinking I was going to be a lawyer, which is what my parents always wanted me to be, especially my dad. Like my dad always, even now, like I'm in my thirties and I still get comments about that. Um, <laughs> and at one point I applied to do social work. And so I kind of bounced around a bit. Um, but in the end, what I ended up doing was I focused on the women's studies department, which while I was there became the Institute for Gender, Race, Sexuality, and Social Justice. So I say I majored in social justice. Um, and then my minor was in First Nation Studies, which was really, I think, um, more where, I, I mean, I felt passionate about both things. Like I'm very passionate about feminism, but I think like decolonization and learning about First Nations issues, like because I live in British Columbia on unceded territory, I've lived in unceded territory my entire life. Like it's a huge underpinning of like my political beliefs and alliances and relationships. So, but I also feel like, you know, I didn't finish my degree. I came very, very close to finishing it. The things I didn't finish were like, I didn't do second year Spanish, you know, like things like that. Mm, um, right. But then I continued to study after that. Like I'm a very avid reader. I love to write. I love to write essays. And like, um, and I haven't been doing that in the last couple of years, but I continue to like read and to learn. And 
I think as much as I've studied social justice, I've also studied a lot of things about like embodiment and trauma and nervous system science. I'm also a herbalist. So I love learning about plants and the natural world. Mm-hmm. I'm very much like an interdisciplinary learner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And okay. So you, so you started out as a teenager. You've always had this like kind of streak of being interested in justice. And also it sounds like in kind of learning. Um, and so you went to college uh, and you studied, you know, social justice. Um, you were very actively involved in like organizing, right? Yeah, you I, I was involved in a lot of different issues. Like I campaigned against a pipeline. I did climate change activism. I did work around feminism, around sex work. I also did work around housing and gentrification and harm reduction and drug users rights and, you know, on and on and on LGBTQ issues. Like there's more than that, but it was a wide range of things that I sort of cared about and worked on. I went to action camps. Like I taught people how to get arrested, defending the land, um, I also learned a lot from like indigenous land defenders, how to do that. Like it's a very, um, for anyone that this is like relevant to, I'm like a Sagittarius sun and rising. So I think, (laughs) and I have a stellium in Sagittarius. So it's very like, I really care about drawing information from many different places and like trying to figure out like, what is the truth? Synthesizer. Yeah. yeah, I'm very bad at being like, I will do this one thing consistently. <laughs> like, right, right. But ultimately, it's all thematically related. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's definitely what I'm seeing too. Um, and so then I, I'm like, what happened after or even while you were in college? Like, what was going on in your life at that point? What, um, yeah. Well, on the one hand, So I went from a college and then into university. And on the one Mm. hand, I loved it because, you know, like in elementary school, my teachers felt that I was a gifted learner. And I also now as an adult recognize that I have ADD. And so I would either like, I would basically either get an A or almost fail. (laughs) Because (laughs) it was like, I either am like so immersed and so interested or like, I just can't do it because I don't care. Like it doesn't seem relevant to my life. Yeah. Um, And so university was really cool because for the most part, and this is why I didn't like have not completely finished my degrees because the stuff that I didn't care about that much, like finishing second year Spanish, like it would be so difficult for me to go back and do that now because I don't remember any of it because it just doesn't seem relevant to me. Right. Um, But the stuff that I cared about, like getting to learn about feminism and the environmental movement and the various different like waves of First Nations like land protection and resistance and like learning about all of that history and resilience like oh my god like I just loved like I just soaked that stuff up you know and and so I was very um very into that worldview and I was also experiencing cancellations um Mm. that were done to me and done to others around me so it was like this mix of like being so committed and like you know seeing certain things 
that other people don't want to see you know like a really good example is like learning about residential schools which is a huge part of canadian history and like the last residential school was closed in 1996 which was eight years after i was born and oh like God. start like that's just one example right where you learn about that history and it is like it's life-changing to learn about that and when i was in elementary school and high school like we never we didn't get access to that information like it's being taught in schools now which is great um so it was this thing where it was like i was kind of willing to be subject to some of the bullying and cruelty of that culture because I was also bullied in high school right so there was a certain baseline for me and and not just in like minor ways like it was pretty severe like I was like suicidal had to have like cops escort me home from school it was ongoing for many years like I had kids lock me in a freezer at one point like there was like oh my god yeah like there was a lot of stuff that happened that like gave yeah. me complex PTSD and some relational issues where like finding social justice was like finding my people but also um you know it can make you behave in fundamentalist ways sometimes where you're like this is the only truth that matters in this like non-negotiable way and like one of the things that I've learned, like, especially being like a Sagittarius, you know, is that there's always, there's much information about anything that, yeah. you know, like, I don't know. I just don't think that there's sort of like, um, static truths, you know, like things are always movable and there's always different perspectives and angles and ways of looking at it. So yeah (laughs) it was complicated though because like I cared a lot about those values and that worldview and like there are things in it that I feel are like undeniable truths what do you what so can you kind of characterize what the worldview was at this point like what were kind of the foundational beliefs of it um and I know you said that you experienced and witnessed some cancellations and I'm kind of curious about those two but first of all the like can you kind of yeah characterize the worldview so yeah I mean there's a lot of pieces to it and you know Uh, people have spoken to this in various different ways I've done it I've heard other people do it um but there are these like unspoken rules in sort of social justice community and we're starting to see them be articulated more directly now through like different um like everyday feminism listicles will actually like (laughs) list those rules like specifically right yeah Um, classic 2010s content yeah (laughs) (laughs) And now, now it's making its way more into like, you know, memes and Instagram slides and various things like that. But I think um, two of the biggest principles, like one is that there are marginalized or oppressed people, and then there are oppressors, you know? And so it's like, you either have a privilege or you don't, you know, you, Mm -hmm. and all of that is related to your identity and your identity which can kind of be calculated through these like points of privilege or points of power um is also related to like how relevant your perspective is to the truth capital t right so 
Mm -hmm. Um, so what that would mean is, you know, for example, there's like a hundred birds flying in front of my car right now. It's like crazy bird activity while I've been out here talking to you about this. Um, (laughs) and it's a different type of birds from before, because this has happened three times already in the time I've been talking to you. What do the birds need? Well, first there was robins, and then there was eagles, and there was also crows, and these look like ravens, so I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> it's a full moon. I live in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> Happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's this idea, basically, that, you know, um, for example, women understand more about rape culture, because... Right women versus men men have more power and authority and privilege and women are more likely to experience violence um and you know and then there's more examples of that like people of color have more of an authority to understand racism or anything to do with race than white people do queer people and trans people have more of an understanding about um homophobia transphobia and i think um even now still i do still believe that there are moments where that is true for sure um and you know i do work and have relationships with people in my life who experience marginalization that's like very different or just have different life experiences from me Mm -hmm. and you know there are moments where like I can feel the truth like sh- like a shiver up my spine, you know, where I'm like, whoa, like this is really true and like tangible and like affects your life in an everyday kind of a way. Right. For sure. <laughs> the birds are just now there's like all three of them. They're all in a giant cloud, like flying with each other. They like to play in the wind. It's like a stormy, windy day outside. So that could be huh. a part of it. Um it's just a cool backdrop though like it's almost psychedelic sort of yeah. <laughs> um so there's yeah there's certain ways you know that I feel like that is true um and I also think that what that worldview does when you apply it to everything is that it sort of flattens discussion in a way where then complexity is like not allowed to breathe. Like relationally, the complexity is not allowed to breathe? Yeah. And, you know, like, for example, one of the call-outs that I experienced was I have always, like, I started practicing yoga when I was, I mean, it says in my high school yearbook, I was doing it when I was 15. And I started to do it like in more earnest when I was 17 after I had been sexually assaulted. And my mom didn't know I had been sexually assaulted, but she saw me having panic attacks and she didn't know how to help me. And she was like, you know, when you go to yoga, you feel better. And so I went to Mm -hmm. yoga and it really was like, yoga is a foundational tool for me in terms of nervous system support, like just learning to be in my body, to be able to breathe. And so, you know, I was really doing work at that time around trying to bring like ethics around decolonization and like really talking to people who were like raised in families where yoga was a part of their like family and ancestral culture 
um, doing work around supporting survivors, queer people, fat people, all these things, you know, like trying to kind of bring social justice and yoga together because there's some ways that they overlap. You know, yoga is like fundamentally like it has principles to it that involve nonviolence. If you mm. look at the like spiritual sort of ethical tenets of yoga, it in, yeah involves nonviolence, involves telling the truth, all this kind of stuff that to me feels like related to social justice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yoga obviously in the social justice world is like very controversial, especially if you're a white person, because the idea is, is that, you know, as a white person, you basically can't do yoga without being racist. <laughs> right, right. And so even if you're trying to do it with like anti-racist values. Um, it's, just, it's just not possible. It's just not possible in that social milieu. Um, and so what that didn't leave any room for was the fact that like, you know, I had people in my life who were a variety of different types of people who were, and I was going into yoga spaces where I was teaching these workshops about social justice through using like yoga as a tool for like connection with other people and, um, exposing these people who were outside of the social justice world to things like we are on unceded territory and like what does it mean mm. to practice something from someone else's culture on stolen land you know like and and just blowing people's minds about this stuff and these were people who were like outside of the social justice world so very new concepts to them but also trying to provide these concepts to them um in a way that also included their bodies and not just their minds, you know, it wasn't just intellectual. And so eventually I, uh, after experiencing a lot of call outs and a lot of harassment, I gave up teaching and practicing yoga and it really negatively contributed to my mental, physical, spiritual well-being. Like it was ultimately good because I took an opportunity to like connect more to my own ancestral practices. Um, but I did eventually like bring yoga back into my life because it is like the foundation of like how I connect to my breath, you know, which is like mm. that's with me every moment of every single day. Um, so, and these are controversial topics. Like I'm not, tr I honestly, I'm not sitting here being like, I know the answer. I have a hot take on what the right answer is to this. Like <laughs> cultural appropriation is totally real. Commodification of like different types of spirituality is 100% real like we need to be careful about those things and also like you know yoga was brought here intentionally from the east to the west for a variety of different reasons <laughs> you know so and that's what I'm saying is that I think the social justice rules on the one hand at that time for me like they were so grounding to my worldview and reality that like I gave up things that I loved that I needed for my well-being yeah. Um, because I thought that that mattered more, that like adhering to those rules mattered more than, um, than my well-being, mm. you know, and it's very, very difficult to, to live sort of in service to anything when you're really like constantly neglecting your own well-being. <laughs> right. So I remember reading an article that you wrote um, about yoga. And I think I remember, was it you like kind of declaring that you were giving it up it was that I didn't want to teach on it anymore from a position of like authority around it and you know when I look back and read that piece 
I agree still that a part of what happens with practices like yoga is that, you know, white people experienced, you know, some people might consider this to be controversial. And this is another like, you know, this is like, this is one of these things where it's like a social justice take that has more complexity. Like my family on my dad's side is very, very, very Scottish. And in Canada, Scottish people, like our first prime minister was Scottish. He was like a horribly racist person, very colonial, right? But when my family came from Scotland, they came from like the Outer Hebrides, like Northern Scotland, you know, they lived, they fought the British army for centuries and like won for a very long time, like defending the land. And there's a very high percentage of pagan sites where my family is from. So it's a very like, land loving spiritually connected culture and i think that you know it was really important for me to like learn to connect to that and that was a part of what i was asserting was that like i wanted to like learn how to connect to my ancestry and and i wanted to step out of because like my family was involved in colonization, both being colonized and becoming a colonizer hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And from there, there has left a cultural spiritual gap, which a huge part of my work as a human is to fill that gap. And so at 17, when I didn't know any of these things about Scottish culture, because all I'd been exposed to was haggis and bagpipes, like, <laughs> which, which have like importance in the culture, but I didn't understand like, you know, what it means to me now yoga was this place where I could like put my pain and like put my desire to be spiritually connected and I think white people do that we like we we when we've experienced colonization which has ripped away our connection to land like we try to replace it with this other system of meaning and and then we commodify that um and I didn't want to participate in that anymore you know, and, and when I read through the piece, there's still parts of it that I agree with, but I also felt like, you know, I remember having like panic attacks and, you know, I have PTSD. I have like various mental health things going on where people in my life would be like, do some yoga. And I'd be like, no, because it's racist, you know? And like, now I'm like, girl, just do the yoga. <laughs> just, <laughs> just do some yoga. Like, just put it, you know, because but it was complicated because then like I, that worldview was so profoundly important to me. Like, like I said, I was willing to give up a lot of the things that made me me um, in order to be in alignment with it because that was what I thought was the truth, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think when you live in a world where you, you, we don't have control over the economy or the climate and things feel, you know, really scary and violent in a lot of ways, like a system that feels like it gives you the answer and people who agree with the answer, like we can give up a lot um, to belong to that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Um, and yeah, so I, I experienced call-outs, like I experienced call-outs around participating in yoga, you know, and it was people, some of it, there was valid pieces in there for me to reflect on. And some of it was literally people on the internet being like, this white bitch thinks she can do whatever she wants. And just saying like mean, degrading, um, cruel things that weren't true about me, mm. you know? 
Um, but I took on those things like they were the truth because I gave people authority over who I was because of their identity. You know, and that continued to be a theme <laughs> I'm still working on now. <laughs> yeah. Do So you feel like that behavior, that decision, whatever, to kind of give up your sense of reality, your self-judgment or whatever, um, over to these people who I guess were kind of enforcing the, um, the belief system of, you know, the ideology that you were a part of. Do you feel like that's something that's inherent to the kind of doctrine of the ideology? Or do you think that's more of like a you and your own personal process and psyche? I think it's both. Okay. I think that if you, um, so, okay, like as a person who, you know, my dad really sort of was not around for me as a kid, like when my he just like emotionally is not very present in my life, like even to this day. And so I think I have this feeling of, and I feel it still now, this split of on the one hand being like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. Fuck you. I'm a good person. I don't need your approval. And then this other part of me being like, I just wish you would love me. What do I have to do to make you love me? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, um, and I think very similar to like dealing with the bullies, right? Where it was like, you know, I just want you to like me. I just want to feel safe. Um, but also the things that you're saying about me aren't true or they're cruel or whatever. And so you can end up in this place where like, and I felt this with social justice too, where like for years before I started to kind of criticize it openly, I remember feeling really conflicted and being like, you know, some of these things are true and are real. And it's like, like I said, capital T truth still holds really true to me feels true I know it's true it's like orient my whole life around how affected I am by how true it feels and then there's other pieces where it's like that doesn't make sense or that's being infused with someone's personal agenda or <laughs> like mm. you know that doesn't actually line with my align with my own values but the thing is is that you know for a long time I was always louder I was often louder about the things that were kind of keeping me in line because I didn't want to lose that community. I didn't want to lose access to the relationships that I had built. Um, and I had like attachment wounds, right? Like I had the not great relationship sure. with my dad. I had the bullies. I had all of this kind of stuff. And I just like, I wanted, and I wanted to be in a world where we were working towards something better together. And so it was like, okay, well, I'm willing to kind of give some things up to be part of this collective. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, I feel like they, like, you know, people sometimes say to me, they're like, you know, when did you choose to like leave social justice or whatever? And I'm like, social justice broke up with me, man. <laughs> like it rejected mm. me repeatedly. Like, it was like, yeah. you're too white, you're too this, you're too that. Like, you know, I've had, there were many years of my life where I was not with cisgendered men, but I was still perceived to be too straight, like, you know, because I'm bi. So it was like, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you're too straight. You're too white. You're too this. Like I had been, you know, there was just a lot of things that happened where it was like me, me, the person that I am, like in a certain version of social justice, like I don't get to belong there. Right. 
And that's one of the things that I really disagree with is I'm like, okay, if we're actually going to have a collective that like stands up to the, to the way the world is and tries to wrench it out of corruption or whatever it is, we need big numbers for that. So like, we can't be saying like, you know, I mean, you, whatever, you can have whatever views that you want, but I'm personally of the opinion that, you know, I try to like, encourage people to connect to those values and to feel like they have a place where they belong in that movement you know that they, we belong on the streets together we belong like with each other and I think a lot of social justice has to do with picking apart who belongs and how and it has to do with like you know the most oppressed people being highly valorized and the people who are involved in oppression you know you don't get to have an opinion. You don't get to count. You don't get to make autonomous decisions about your life. <laughs> like you have to subject yourself. You know, and now I've come to realize that it doesn't have to be that way, but it took a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So I know that I'm kind of like going to um, bring it back to your story. So I know that you said, you know, you were like into herbalism, right? And you, um, that's like, and you also were into yoga. So you have a very spiritual, um, you know, thread in your life. Can you tell me about when you opened Witch Cabinet and what that was like and how that ties into your experience with social justice and your values around that? Yeah, so I moved, I grew up in the city and I really... I'm not an urban person, <laughs> you know, like I, I, it's too overstimulating for me, I think is the simplest way of putting it. And so yeah. I moved to a rural area where there was not a lot of jobs. And I was like trying to get jobs, trying to get jobs, trying to get jobs, like just not making enough money to make ends meet. And, you know, ever I'm like a fairly like entrepreneurial person in a lot of ways. And so I decided that I was going to like, basically take the things I was passionate about and make a business about it. And this was kind of slightly prior to the explosion of witchcraft. Yeah, it was, you know, or like it was amongst the, the initial wave of the explosion of witchcraft on Instagram. Yeah, it was like like probably before Instagram witchcraft really took off, I would say. Yeah. I'd be curious to be like, what year did witches of Instagram get made? (laughs) Probably lines up somewhere along the lines of that. So yeah. You know, and initially my business morphed a lot of ways because at first I was like, I'm going to exclusively read tarot. And then what actually took off more was like my herbalism. And then like I was doing writing and workshops and I basically, you know, I had quit doing yoga and I was like deep diving into learning about like magic and plants and my ancestral connections to where I come from. And I was documenting that and writing about that and learning about it with different teachers and you know, engaging in a certain kind of what I consider to be like a community academia or whatever, right? Where I was taking in ideas and responding to them and sharing them with other people. And um, yeah, and so then I started writing for Little Red Tarot. I wrote for Witch. I wrote, I wrote for a bunch of different organizations and for myself, self-publishing. So writing was kind of my main thing. Um, and you know, I published zines, like I said, Mm -hmm. I'm a many times over fire sign. 
The birds are just <laughs> going like, look at this. They're going nuts. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. There's like a zillion birds. Yeah. They're, well, cause it's windy. So they're all gliding in the, and see, this fun. is part of it for me is I feel like I definitely am of a worldview that like the land and its inhabitants are like, you know, obviously they're doing what they're doing for like their own reasons. But I also feel like, I feel like a deep connection to crows. So it's like, and Corvid. So it's like very interesting to watch the crows are just like whirlwinding around my car right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, basically what I did was I took, it came out of being broke. <laughs> like I was broke, but I was living in this like beautiful rural environment and I wanted to showcase like this journey I was taking to like connect to the land and tie that into like feminism and social justice and indigenous solidarity and environmentalism and like weave that all through like magic and witchcraft and it's funny because like I like science but I'm and I'm also like a very like woo person (laughs) so you know and I was weaving all that together and but also I was like you know, a part of what made my business successful was that it was heavily niched. Yeah. You know, like, it was heavily niched to basically people who were very similar to me. It was like people who cared about social justice, people who cared about magic and witchcraft, people who wanted to blend those two things together because, you know, the social justice world, there are spiritual people in that world. Um, a lot of cults love to blend those two things together, you know, like spirituality and social justice. Um, but a lot of the social justice world can be very skeptical of, uh, I mean, social justice world is skeptical of like almost everything, (laughs) you know, but you know, skeptical of especially white people practicing spirituality, you know? So, but I was like, no, there's a way we can do this. Like, there's a way that we can like practice our feminism and our solidarity and we can like weave all this together and I taught like a few I taught on a few different topics I taught about like um holistic contraception so like plant-based contraception was a big one which was controversial (laughs) everything I did was controversial I also (laughs) um taught about boundaries and like creative self-expression as a form of healing trauma and I kind of morphed those two things together to form my class Hawthorne Heart which um, is basically a body of work that brings together feminism witchcraft and herbalism and sort of self-help stuff around boundaries Mm -hmm. and it kind of took off right like you know I like to say like I was becoming famous in a tiny pocket of the internet. <laughs> like, I think that's definitely true. <laughs> like if yeah. you were in my pocket of the internet, for the most part, you probably knew who I was. But yeah. if you were not in my pocket of the internet, it wouldn't have mattered at all to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, and, but it changed how people treated me. Um, changed how I treated myself. How so? Uh, well, I was self-documenting a lot of different things going on in my life. And that was how I made my money. Well, and also I, I felt that parasocial thing of I'm a 
like I'm accountable to my audience mm. you know mm-hmm. um in the sense that like I gotta follow through on what I say I'm gonna do which for the most part I did but I didn't always all the time you know I'm not right. perfect and um and yeah I mean I like it it's yeah at that time I really felt like I had figured out how to be free in the sense that I was setting my own schedule. I was creating work on my own terms. And I really underestimated the impact of inviting that kind of surveillance, self-surveillance into my life. And it impacted me in some pretty big ways where, (laughs) yeah, I'm not going to, I won't go into how I feel about it now. I'm going to try to keep this linear. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of curious though. You mean like the self-surveillance and how that impacted you? Well, you know, when you are relying on your audience for your income, uh-huh. first of all, there's a pressure to like always be producing. For sure. Which on the one, it was weird because I, on the one hand was like, I have escaped capitalism. Like I am making what I want, but I also like, it wasn't just what I, I had to do it based on like what my audience wanted for them to feel comfortable giving me the money and things they were giving me. Right. Right. Um, which is fine. But it also meant that, you know, like there was a, a, a schedule of production, like that my my body, my mind, my creative process, my spiritual process, like it had to fall under this schedule of production. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe I wasn't feeding like a capitalist overlord, but I was feeding this audience and then receiving sustenance from them, you know, and that's not necessarily like bad, but it does make it so that it's like, you know, especially if you have like people pleaser tendencies or you've been, you know, experienced bullying or whatever, where it's hard to set boundaries, it can be challenging to like disappoint your audience, you know, or like, um, and people begin to feel entitled to tell you what they want you to do. So, and, you know, I think one of the other things, like, for example, like at one point me and my mom were having some conflict and I was really upset with my mom and, you know, I published a piece of writing, which I wrote to her and, and yeah, and people loved it. People were Mm -hmm. like, this is amazing. This is really relatable. I've sent this to my mom. Thank you so much. But then in counseling with my mom later, she like expressed to me that she was really hurt by that. Ooh you know, and, and I felt like, I think at that time, it felt like, like, I look at influencers now, like, even influencers who I love to follow, and it's like, they are showing, like, so many things, like, throughout the, you know, throughout their, time in their day right and that's not necessarily bad but it's like that's why we watch them because we want to see these like details of their life and it's like I think now what I've realized is that like I didn't I remember back then being like I don't agree with this but it's like some things are kind of too sacred to be 
tweeted or whatever. <laughs> I'm not on mm-hmm. Twitter, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. Like, like some things deserve, like there's an alchemist, there's an alchemy to privacy. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? And yeah. If privacy if is important. Know, and, and so it was just like showing like my process, like, like, my, I don't know. There was a lot of like documenting what I was living through as I was living it. Yeah. Which yeah. made it simultaneously like compelling and successful, but also like, I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of that show girls where she talks about how like <laughs> she hurts herself by like being overly available to life to like create good stories for her to write about. Uh huh. You know what I'm talking, do you know what? what I do know girls. About? I do know girls. Yeah. And she, yeah, she just goes through, she kind of like allows herself to get into these like horrible degrading situations because it like makes good fodder for story for content. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally. And that's yeah. what it felt like was happening to you in a way. I think that's not how it felt at the time. It felt like I was like, just felt like I was yeah self-documenting my process but I think that there's an like I said there's an alchemy there's an alchemy to privacy and there's an alchemy to time and like mm-hmm. when I look back now at some of the things that I wrote and I'm struggling with this personally now because uh, people want me to like republish this work but I'm like I feel differently about it now have time having had passed and I've changed as a person yeah <laughs> So then you've made Witch Cabinet and um, you have Hawthorne Heart. And that's like a big, a big kind of uh, location for the climax of your story, right? Um, Do you want to talk about like getting closer to your call out that kind of led to the spiral? Um, I think I called it once uh, you being annihilated. Um, Yeah. So what led to that? So basically, yeah, I had this class, which was the mainstay of my income. And I lo- it was like a 12-week class. So it got launched four times a year. And so my income came into my life in four really big chunks every year, um, which on the one hand was challenging. <laughs> but uh-huh. on the other hand was amazing because I'd get this like, amount of money you know which was usually between like I think it usually get around like you know six to eight thousand up to like the max I got once was sixteen thousand wow but like on average it maybe be like ten thousand you know yeah. which if that's only happening four times a year that's forty thousand dollars and then you have to pay taxes and I had employees and I had expenses and whatever so like I was like barely cracking like the poverty line breaking above the pot like the Canadian poverty line is officially $24,000 so I was like okay I was yeah. like barely peeking my head above that right but also right. you know when you've been you know like my family is pretty comfortably like middle class they have assets and stuff like that but I'm a millennial who was in university in 2008 like I've always been a pretty like like kind of like a don't have a lot of money, but I do for the most part have a safety net. Right. It's how I'd sort of position myself class wise. So to be in a position where like, you know, 
the time I got sixteen thousand dollars in like a week, I was like, holy fuck, I'm rich. You know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I was like, this is amazing. Um, and I could use that money to like produce things in my life, and I was working towards it being passive income. And so around all of this time two things were happening. One was that me and my ex-husband were, we were, his family purchased a piece of land, which had nothing on it in terms of infrastructure. So it has like no power, no house, nothing. Mm -hmm. And we were really excited about going out there and living there. And uh, my plan, you know, we were going to land there in August with a trailer and then I was going to launch my class in September. And then I would have, you know, probably around $10,000 to be able to like do this kind of push to get the trailer and everything around it, like ready to be livable in winter. And we knew it was going to be tough, but it was like doable based on the skills that we have. And then simultaneously to that happening, um, you know, my group for my class, I had a Facebook group for my class where you could be in it for free. And the group was growing. I think it had like 900 people in it, many of whom had not taken the class. And suddenly the group really changed in its tone because it used to be quite friendly and supportive. And like, it was actually like a really awesome group to be in because one of the values of the group was that it was like self-regulated and that we weren't just gonna shit on each other. Like we were gonna treat each other like there was a person on the other side of the computer. And like, I saw people work out conflict in this group and it was really cool. Yeah, the group was like amazing. And I was working towards more passive income and to really deep diving into this off grid land project with my husband who I loved. Like, I still love him very much. I care about him very much. And we were like, in this thing together, like this was our big goal. And then at the same time, I was getting a lot of pressure in my DMs <laughs> from people wanting me to kick other people out of my group. Um, and just various other things. So there was a lot of background sort of pressure for how I would manage this almost a thousand person group on Facebook. And I knew that I was going to be living in the woods without regular access to power, um, without regular access to the internet. And I just didn't really want to be managing this group and all of the, you know, maybe drama is, I'm sure some people would be angry at me for saying drama, but like it was it was dramatic. And a lot of the call outs that were being sent to me, um, in my opinion, were overblown and did not have substantiated evidence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was like, I dated this person and they did something I didn't like, and they're toxic and they shouldn't be in your group. And I would be like, well, my group is about like healing relationally. <laughs> yeah. I so remember like part of the rules of your group, I think like explicitly said people that have done harm are welcome here or something to that effect. It probably wasn't exactly like that. Um, but I remember thinking yeah. when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is not something that I see <laughs> in these parts of the yeah. internet or world. And what would happen too, was that sometimes, you know, two people who are in a relationship would join my class and one of them would message me and say, Hey, this is my ex. Da, 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 da. And they would, and sometimes they'd want me to kick the person out. And what I would say was, no, like, this is a class on boundaries. I want you to figure out what your boundaries are to share a space with this person. It's not a physical space, you know? And so I would say, you know, if you want to be in the group, if you want to be in the class, but you don't want to interact with your ex, block them. 
if you don't want to block them, then don't participate in the Facebook group. Like, you know, these are your options. Or participate in the Facebook group, but don't, don't, you know, whatever. Figure out what your boundary is. Don't talk about them directly if you don't want them to see or whatever, you know, like right. you have these. And, and some people got mad, but some people were like, oh, oh, I can do that. Like I can, I can do this class and not talk to my ex, even though my ex is also in the class. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Because you got the lessons into your inbox. It was like text. And then you had the choice to participate in the Facebook group or not. Yeah. As an addendum to the class, you know, and so it was cool. It was like, it was successful. I made money off it. I think, I think it helped people. That was the feedback I got from a lot of people. And yeah, I was proud of it. And I was, and I was counting on this money to appear and I wanted to back out of the Facebook group. And simultaneous to that, I was writing a piece about toxic call out or not to call out culture, but toxic social justice. Um, and I knew, again, sort of self-documenting some of my feelings, like I knew that it would probably cause some issues. <laughs> backfire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think it backfired. I actually think it was kind of, there was a sacredness to the violence of the timing of all of it. But yeah, I mean, I can kind of tell you about, do you want me to, I mean, you were there. So do you want me to talk about, I think for full transparency, we say that Molly was, you were like an admin assistant for me. Yeah, basically. You were yeah. one of the people I paid with my 10000 Yeah, and you paid me well, man. Like, <laughs> I remember <laughs> being like, what? Um, yeah, yeah, you were I definitely. Tried. I tried, well, yeah like one of the things about you that and and like witnessing it um whatever it's just you're so generous <laughs> and so like even though you didn't have a lot of money like you know like you said you're kind of barely scraping by the poverty line in Canada um you still made it a priority to pay people like I feel like and maybe correct me if I'm wrong but I remember that you published a zine at one point and you had a call for contributors and I think that you said that people who got into the zine would be paid $50 like, or something. It was an amount that I was like, Whoa, <laughs> like, that's like a lot of money. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and that was the thing was, you know, so I actually experienced two call outs the summer before I moved on to the piece of land. And the first one was a lot more personal and I'll just go over it real quickly before we go into the bigger one, but it was a former friend of mine. Um, and it was sad because we actually like we weren't super close, but we had a cool creative relationship that involved a lot of trades. And it was just I, I appreciated our relationship. And anyways, this person, in my opinion, kind of went off the deep end and wrote literally like a, over a hundred page call out. It looked like a Ph.D. thesis that was like, <laughs> oh, my and gosh. it named, I think, over 10 people. Um, in just participating, like colluding in this unhealthy culture of where we came from. And for the most part, I think people, you know, most of the people who read it in my world were a bit worried for this person. They were like, wow, you must have spent a long time writing this. And it's it and it kind of came off as a little paranoid. Um, 
but the reason why that call out was hard for me was not so much that it was like substantive to my income. It was that that person was my friend. Mm. And they were also really close at that time with someone who used to be my best friend, like really, really close friend. And I could see both of them, but particularly my really, really close friend, I could see their words sprinkled out through what was written. And the main accusation was that I was too wealthy. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was, is that I had told a friend of mine, this this former, like really, really close friend of mine, I was like, yeah, I made like $10,000 last week on my class, which only happened four times a year. But for whatever reason, this, and I said something like, you know, my goal is to make this much. Like, I think my goal ultimately was to make a hundred thousand dollars a year. That was what I was working towards. And I never, I never hit that goal. In my first year of my business, I made, I think $20,000. And in my second year of my business, I made 60 something, I think. Which uh-huh. was a pr- which was pretty fucking impressive to me to be like I'm scaling up, bitch. That's a lot of money, dude. <laughs> that actually, yeah, that's more money than yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, you have to keep in mind though that like it's Canadian dollars. <laughs> well, yeah, Canadian dollars. But also, like <laughs> that's like before I paid taxes, before my expenses. Like that was not. Yeah, for sure, okay, for sure. Like, net gross, whatever it was like, you know, it was before all of my deductions, which were substantial, like. Because I donated 10 to 15% of my raw profits, like before expenses. So if I made $10,000 on my class, I made a $1,000 donation to something. Yeah. Yeah. So if I made $60,000 that year, I donated $6,000. Yeah. And it was often more than that. And then there was personal money I was giving away to other people and employing people generously and whatever. So, you know, ultimately, like I said, I was like, peeking my head over the poverty line starting to feel like I was middle class being like yeah I'm rich (laughs) but I was not rich like I'm not not rich right and Mm -hmm. and these people were like Poplar has too much authority and it has to do with them having way too much money and they like basically quadrupled the amount of money that I was making so you know like I made sixty thousand dollars it was like I think they said that I was my my I think they just said that I made over a hundred thousand and my goal was to make $250,000 or something. And it was like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's not what I wish I'd been making that kind of money. <laughs> so, so, you know, that was hard and it was draining and it was personal. And that was another example of like, you know, in, according to social justice rules, I am wealthy. Mm-hmm. And the person making this accusation is not wealthy. And therefore, whatever they're saying is true. And I need to check myself because I am a privileged oppressor financially. But it was not true. Like, it was not mm-hmm. based in factual reality. So, like, you know, are there moments when it's important to listen to marginalized people about their experiences? Yes. For sure. Is every single thing a marginalized person says always true no (laughs) right and also in the social justice world there is a very weird way that people can construct their identity like to appear to have a certain kind of authority when they really don't like this person was very similar to me financially 
Like we weren't like the two people involved in this call out were not in a financially wildly different place than me, except that I made digital products. And so my income could go up kind of exponentially. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas they were tied to a waged labor. That Mm -hmm. was the main difference, but we weren't class wise, wildly different from each other. We were, we were all white, all queer, all of a similar age, all of a similar financial bracket, but it was framed as if I was the oppressor for X, Y, Z reasons. And they were the moral authority, even though we were essentially identity identical. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that call out didn't have a lot of legs, but it was personally like hurtful because it felt yeah. like people in my life who had previously like had my back, appreciated me, you know, were coming for me. Yeah. And it does hurt. And, but then I was like, you know what? It is true that when you start to succeed, like some people just lose their shit. And there was a lot of complicated interpersonal stuff between me and these people. And so I'm not going to go into because I don't think it's relevant, but like, it was just about more than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so then, so I'm, so I'm getting called out for stuff that's not, you know, like it was, it was so ridiculous that one of my friends like there was this whole friend group who were sort of involved in this call out and for whatever reason like nobody thought to tell me this that this was going on but one of my friend's partners was like we need to tell Poplar this because they're they're publishing Poplar's income in public and so this person did me like a real solid and was like hey just so you know this is happening and it's not okay yeah (laughs) And it was also just factually untrue, but I just didn't respond to it because I was like, you know, it doesn't really have any legs. It was like so exaggerated that it was like hard to even take in the parts that were real about it because it was just not in line with reality. I think that's one of the problems that I have with cancel culture now is that, you know, okay, like I work with survivors of violence. I am a survivor of violence. Like I have worked with people dealing with violence and doing violence prevention work for like almost all of my adult life. Like it's an active practice in my daily life. Like I do believe survivors and like you just can't say that because someone is a survivor, they're automatically telling the truth because people lie. People lie, people make things up. They have various different kinds of motivations you know, and yeah. And so I think one of the problems I have with cancel culture right now is this idea that like anything a survivor says is holy and sacred and it can never be questioned. And you're politically wrong and bad if you question those things, because it's like, no, sorry. Like, I know I'm not the only person to have said this. Clementine Morgan has said this. Tata Hazumi has said this. Lots of people have said this. Like, you know, it's important that if you're going to make a call out that you actually be grounded in like actual reality. Because you're not doing anyone a service when you're massively exaggerating your claim of harm, <laughs> you know? And so that that's what happened in this situation. It was massively exaggerated, but it didn't really affect me that much other than it was personally hurtful. Yeah. So that was going on. I was writing about toxic social justice and, you know, some of the things coming up with this call out. And simultaneously, I was being sent multiple call outs all the time. And a person came into my Facebook group and really changed the vibe of the whole group. 
Yeah. And was constantly, basically every single post that was made, they responded to the post by saying white privilege. Mm -hmm. And this is complex. Like this is, this is where things get uncomfortable, frankly, to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Right. So. It's tender, tender topic. So they came into the group, no matter what you were saying, it didn't matter what the topic was about. The vast majority of the time, it was not directly about race. It was just anything, anything you said, the person would respond by saying white privilege underneath. I can provide an example, actually, <laughs> if, it, if it helps. Um, I remember, so I was participating in this group. I um, eventually, actually at this point, I believe, helped Poplar um, like run the course, just like administratively, like sending the emails. Um, but I also was like just working on taking care of myself and, you know, setting healthy boundaries. Um, and I kind of felt like at the time I didn't really have a lot of like need for support with like relational boundaries and working on that, that felt somewhat solid. It just wasn't a focus on my life. But anyway, so, um, I started thinking, I was like, oh, wow, like you can set boundaries with yourself. (laughs) And I was super mentally ill at this point. Um, I was really struggling actually with the fallout of my own call out online um, earlier that year. And um, so I made this post and I said something to the effect of like, I realized today that I can set boundaries with myself and that's actually really important. And that's part of this process. And like, so I'm, I'm working on that and I'm thinking about it. And so today I had the energy um, to like do my laundry or something. Yeah. And this person commented and said like, yawn like this is white privilege um this is like I don't know if they said like this is ridiculous but there's like there was a dismissiveness to it and there often was yeah and then I kind of like I think I actually like did try to push back against it which felt really fucking weird (laughs) um and because you know like the impulse is to hear that and like say you're right like thank you thank you for for that um like I well, should do some self-reflection the impulse, but the social justice rule right right and so the conditioned impulse I guess and you know yeah. that was my conditioned impulse um but I kind of pushed back against it because I saw this person's like you know behavior in the group kind of changing the the climate I guess and there was like less sharing in the group less participation um yeah, less sharing less participation and less trust less trust. And so they kept eventually what it, what it kind of devolved into, um, was them like saying you can PayPal me, like you're acting like white fragility. And so PayPal me. Um, yeah. yeah. The majority of her comments were literally just the phrase white privilege. Mm -hmm. Sometimes she would expand on it further than that, but most of the time it was just white privilege. And usually if she would say more than white privilege, she would put her PayPal in the comments. Mm -hmm. and you know I felt a lot of things I felt resentful because it changed the trustworthy air of the group which the group was majority white people but not exclusively white people there were folks of color there was some diversity in the group and even some issues like that would come up like there would be conversations where people would talk about race and and privileges and various different things and it but it was always 
from my perspective watching it the the dominant majority of the time it was kind and productive and people were learning and listening to each other and this mm-hmm. person came in and you know I think a part of it was that their tone was really dominating it was like yeah that's you basically yeah. couldn't have a conversation about anything without them participating in the conversation putting it into the framework of white privilege and then demanding you give them money yeah and it was uncomfortable and I felt frustrated but I felt on the one hand my 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 genuine reaction was this is frustrating but I checked myself with the social justice rules and I said okay I'm white this person is not white and this person is not white passing either uh and you know I think I need to give them space to elucidate their feelings about this you know and and basically I'm going to check myself instead of checking them because that's the right thing to do and so what I did was I gave them access to the course which the course so every time I would launch the course by the by it was like the the cost of the course went up as more material was added to it. And by the last round, it was 400 US dollars to take the course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a three month course and it was like, you know, a little bit like $130 a month or something, right? Um, and you could pay it in a payment plan. You could pay it all at once. You could email me and negotiate a lower price if you needed that. There was always people who were there on scholarship and there was a large portion of people who were there via trades. So I, I did a lot of trades with people. So there was a lot of different ways you could access the course. And this person, I gave them access to the course for free because I was like, this is a racialized person who's engaging in all of the content and is really like wanting to add their perspective. And mm-hmm. I value their perspective, even though I found it frustrating, I value their perspective. So I'm gonna give them more space to participate. Um, and I never expressed that frustration publicly. Oh yeah, no. Never. Even though people were coming to me on a regular basis telling me that they were frustrated, including people who were not white. So it was very complicated. It was very, very complicated. And so there was this building tension on many different sides. It was like, I'm gonna go live in the woods. I'm not gonna have power. I'm getting sent call outs from people who are telling me to kick other people out of the group, which goes against my values of how I want to run the group. This person has shown up in the group and is in all honesty, dominating every conversation with how they want to talk about it. Um, Because they, they commented on basically every post, like just very present in the group. And then you know, and then there was this call out that I received and this piece I was working on about the toxic aspects of social justice. And so all of these things are swirling around together. And I am like, I want to get out of this Facebook group. And you're working on moving to this piece of land. And like you were, you also, I remember were dealing with like a really shitty housing situation even before like dealing with the land like wasn't your landlord doing all sorts of weird shit the housing was like falling apart I don't know anyway well the place I was in directly before moving here um was good but the place before that was expensive and very stressful and yeah there was like through you know throughout my business like the majority of it I was technically homeless 
because I was living in a camper and then, you know, I there were multiple different times where I like, I just didn't have a home, you know? So there was, yeah, there was housing instability. There was a lot of things going on. And I just knew moving on to this piece of land that like, I wasn't going to have the capacity to engage with this group at this level of engagement. I didn't, wasn't going to have internet access. <laughs> so yeah. And also, I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. I didn't want to deal with these people messaging me all the time about about these call outs and telling me to kick people out of my group. And, you know, and, and, you know, and so at this, like around this juncture, a, a course, a part of the class was launched about decolonization. And this person who would constantly make comments about white privilege so for me, talking about decolonization, I live in British Columbia. I've always lived on unceded territory. Most of my like anti-racism solidarity work is with indigenous people. So that was the angle through which I was talking about it. Um, this person was racialized in a different way and was basically like, you are leaving out what's what happened to my people. You are failing to talk about decolonization accurately which now looking at it, I'm like, actually, I'm just speaking to it from my context, what I understand, what I have been taught and information that has been shared with me. I actually would have been not appropriate for me to try to speak to it from their perspective because they were American. They were racialized in a way that like I was not super familiar with. And it just would have been really strange for me to try to speak to their experience. Right. And so what I said was, you know, if you would like to write something about this, I would be willing to consider including it in my course and paying you. Which I personally think is the right thing to do according to the social justice rules. It's like, you're critiquing my thing. I'm offering to give you space to express your opinion to which I will pay you and share it with other people and give you credit. Um, which then led to this person messaging me on a daily basis, demanding money literally every day. And so all of these things are happening all at once. And I decide what, and I realize now what I should have done is I should have asked if someone, I should have asked someone specific in the group to take over the group for me and announce that. And instead what I did was I said, I'm, you know, I'm leaving Facebook for these variety of reasons. And would someone like to take over my group? And I don't know how I didn't see this coming. But this person who had been sort of dominating the group and asking me for money every day said that they wanted to take over the group. And because I'm white and they're racialized in a way that, you know, where they're not white and that's obviously like extremely important to them and how they're existing in the group. I felt like even though their behavior was not in alignment with the original intention of the group and even though they were sending me, like they were harassing me, like, when you're sending someone messages every single day demanding money because that person is white and you're not, like for me, in my opinion, and maybe this is controversial, but it was harassment. And, but I didn't feel like I could say no because the social justice rules were that I had to say yes to this person. And so I said, okay, you can have, you can take over the group. And then the harassment escalated even more where then I was getting messages every day being told, I want you to pay me to run the group. And I said, you know, you can put your PayPal in the group. The group is very active. You can use it to make money in entrepreneurial ways. I don't, I, I can't afford to pay you 
And they were like, well, I'm not going to facilitate it if you won't pay me. And I said, okay, well, you don't have to. <laughs> well, it and also that- at this point was going to have nothing to do with your course. I feel like that's also relevant. Yeah. Um, My you one were just literally that- like deplatforming. You were deplatforming. Yeah, I deplatformed to a racialized person, basically. And um, so there's a lot of pressure on me. Now it's I want you to pay me to run the group. And I will also mention that in amongst all of this happening, this person who's, you know, having a very domineering way of existing in the group, other people who were not white were messaging me and saying that they felt that the way this person was speaking about other racialized groups was itself racist. So it was very complicated because I had, you know, I'm a white person. I have all these different people of racial, different racial identities with different agendas. (laughs) And so that was really hard because when you're in the social justice world and you're told, you know, you need to listen to people of color. You need to basically do what they say because they know more about racism than you do. What are you supposed to do as a white person in a position of power when multiple different racialized people are telling you completely different things? Right? Like it was really confusing. And so, you know, I put my foot down and I said, I will give you $100. I will send you a copy of Emergent Strategy. And my one request is that I would like you to maintain a good relationship with me through this group. So, you know, I want you to, which would mean like if I publish a piece of writing, please share it, but also manage the group how you want, you know? But I had put in years of work into building this group, and I just wanted to have like a good relationship with this person. Um, meanwhile, so I'm dealing with all of this. This person had basically this this offer for them to write a piece, like to write a piece that I might put into my course never really got off the ground. There was never agreements about how long it would be, what it would talk about, all this kind of stuff. And there was a lot going on for me at that time. And there, it just never, yeah, it just kind of never, it kind of never got off the ground. And there was a lot of moving pieces. And this person, like I said, emailed me every single day demanding money. And there was a lot more demands for money than there was conversation about this piece that they were meant to write. And so basically I deplatformed, I gave them my group and I published my piece about toxic social justice kind of all at the same time. The piece is still up on the body is not an apology. It's, it's called excommunicate me from the cult of toxic social justice. And so basically what happened was this piece came out, this person took over my group, they locked me out of the group and they told the group that I, well, it was very vaguely worded. Mm-hmm. But it was written in a way that made it very confusing for people where the main thing that people took away from it was that they felt that I had published her work in my course. So I had stolen her work and not paid her. Which is not what happened. I had offered her an opportunity to write a piece, which was never written. I never published her work. I would never do that. (laughs) You didn't even run the course again is the thing. There's no potential. There's no way that you could have done that. 
yeah so from when it from when i offered her that opportunity the next time it was supposed to go out was september was the next round of the course and this was in the summertime part way through the course um and you know this is about a month before i move into onto this piece of raw land with no power and no water and all this stuff and so and you know at this time i'm off facebook my instagram explodes my editor and my husband and you were all like, do not go into the group, which I couldn't do. I'd been blocked out of the group. And she was claiming that she had receipts. But what the receipt was, was it was her, uh, it was me saying something in response to her, like, I'm actually really at capacity right now. And I need to delay having this conversation. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so and nowhere in her receipts were every single day, she's sending me emails asking her for money you know, nowhere. And a lot of these emails are not just like, um, will you give me money for this? It was like, you have to give me money for this because you're white. You know, like it's racist for you to not give me money for this because you're white. So it was really complicated. And I was, not, and I couldn't see the inside of the call out of the group. And then people in the group started defending me. You know, like my friends started defending me. My husband started defending me. This person was claiming, was misgendering me. At that time, I used exclusively a they pronoun and they were calling me she. This person was claiming that I was straight and in a heterosexual marriage, but my husband was transgender and so was misgendering my husband. Uh, yeah, so misgendering me, saying I have a different sexual orientation than I do. And the group just like exploded with all of these people just criticizing me and they just dogpiled onto me like really intensely. And I ended up in the group one time by accident and obviously just like, it was really horrible and I just was totally frozen and my husband just closed the computer and like, you know, because, and when he was in the group and he said, actually you're using this person's, like my, my wife's pronoun is this, and I am transgender, he got deleted and blocked from the group. And meanwhile, while all of this is going on, you know, where there is this hazily constructed accusation that I've stolen this person's writing and not paid them, this person is putting their PayPal all over the place and like collecting money through this lie. And the fallout of that was that, you know, the places that I wrote for didn't want to publish my work anymore. One of them wanted to do an accountability investigation. Oh, yeah. And I didn't trust that process because I was like, you know what? I'm white and this person is racialized in a certain way where I just feel like even though I haven't done anything wrong, basically, I will be told that I have done something wrong because of the optics of what this looks like. And you have to understand that for me, this was like really devastating because I... Like at that time, I remember thinking to myself, I wish I had done this. I wish I had stolen this person's writing so that I could say I was wrong. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I made a mistake, you know? But what happened was, is that I hadn't done something wrong. I had given this person all the space they wanted. I had deplatformed to this person. I had given them basically as much money as I could afford to do that was like, you know, reasonable within my mind. I'm not gonna like basically give this person money where then I can't eat and afford mm -hmm. my basic bills you know um because that just would have been not reasonable and 
you know, I, even though I was really uncomfortable, I deferred to this person because I was white and they were racialized in a way that I wasn't. And I, it was so confusing for me because what it showed me was that people could take advantage of those rules. Yeah. They could take advantage of those rules and they could lie. Just, they could just straight up lie. They could just make up a lie. And it was like, you know, and you know, maybe listening to this, people will say, people will think, you know, that I should have done more. Right. They could think, they could think I'm lying. I mean, you were there. There were Mm -hmm. other witnesses. If you go onto my Instagram and you look at the posts, there's people on the posts saying, you know, that they saw this going on and they felt like it was inappropriate, like, you know, but ultimately you're going to believe whatever you believe about it. If you want to believe that I'm lying because I'm white and this person is telling the truth because they're not white, you can go ahead and believe that. And I'm here to tell you that like trying to rectify these two things broke my brain. Like it was like so confusing because I was like, I wanted to be able I mean, it was so conflicting because I knew that this stuff was going on. Like I knew that basically people could utilize call outs to get what they wanted, even if it was not actually in alignment with reality, or even Mm -hmm. if it was violent and punishing. Um, But I also, at this point, you know, I'm living in the woods. My trailer has fallen through. Mm -hmm. I don't have daily access to the internet. Uh, and I can't relaunch my course because everything I post gets dogpiled on by people accusing me of being racist, stealing somebody's work. And like I said, like, I wish I could have just said, you know, I did this and I'm sorry, but I just, I didn't, I didn't steal this person's work. I deplatformed to them. I gave them money. I gave them everything I could reasonably give them. (laughs) you know within the constructs of the social justice world and so now I'm in the woods my trailer's falling through I'm sleeping on a mattress under a tarp a blue tarp yeah and I have no money so like I'm eating ramen from the gas station and I'm gluten intolerant so you know I think that shows to the level of like And, you know, by this time I was in a better place with my gluten intolerance, but like in previous times in my life, like eating gluten made me like really, really, really sick. So, you know, I'm in the yard foraging for mushrooms and berries and whatever, and trying to add some nutrition to my food. And, you know, suddenly I'm in the woods with no money. And at this time, my mom, who was my financial safety net, also had no money because she was going through a divorce. So I'm expecting to have, you know, about a 10 to $16,000 income at this time, which would have, I had the carpentry skills and the skills to be able to like do what I needed to do, but without the money, how was I going to do that? Right. And it was really hard. (laughs) It was really 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 hard
we're just over capacity, you know, like in my mind, I hear because I, this is just how my brain works, probably in part because of my own like indoctrination into this toxic social justice world. But it's like this this voice that's like, well, why didn't you just run the course? It's like because you're over capacity. And like when I hear this, like that's the most important part of stories like this is that you're like these people are human beings and people have limits like people have limits and they can't push themselves past them um you know like I don't know I don't know that's that's just what came up for me listening well to this. and okay and to be to be clear like the way that I would promote my course was by writing a piece or two of writing and publishing it and you know usually on a bigger outlet uh-huh. But I lost all my writing jobs. Mm, that's right. You know, and looking back on it, and one of the people that I used to write for wrote an article about me and about how all the things I should have done differently. And ultimately now, a couple of years out, and she did this without talking to me first. And I told her later, I was like, you know, you should have, you, we were friends in person. Like you should have talked to me. And if you talked to me, you would have known like, I really did do my best here. And even if I made some mistakes, which ironically were the opposite mistakes of like what I, what people thought I was doing, like what I should have done is had better boundaries with this person. Mm. I should not have deplatformed to this person. Right. But the problem was, and I knew this, like I knew that this, I could feel this person like slowly backing me into a corner that was very, very hard to get out of. And, you know, I don't think that there was anything I could have done other other than say no to them, but it really didn't feel like I could say no to them because of what the social justice rules were. Mm-hmm. Which I now, looking back on it, I actually sort of think that in a weird roundabout way that that is actually kind of racist, that it's like, For I'm, sure. actually, I'm not going to have boundaries with you, racialized person, because I'm white and you're not. And so therefore, I'm just going to let you treat me like shit. And that's okay because I'm white and you're not like that. That actually like is not, it doesn't make sense. Right. I mean, it's like you're like, you're completely categorizing like a a person who is racialized in an entirely different way. Um, And in some ways, almost like deifying them, I feel like. And like, that's fucking racist, dude. It's racist. Yeah, it's basically saying that your version of reality, even if it's not grounded in the truth of reality, matters more than mine enough that I will subject myself to being treated like shit by you. Because there's a difference between, you know, like, for example, my partner now is indigenous and he'll joke around with me sometimes where, He'll say something, he'll, go, he'll say, that's mighty white of you. <laughs> you know, and sometimes he's being an asshole. He's just being facetious. But sometimes, every once in a while, it's like, yeah, yeah. And I have to think about it. Or I have an interaction with someone in his family or experience something, you know, in his community where I'm like, damn, like, I really got to fucking think about that. You know, I made a mistake or I, 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 you know, whatever. I approached this in the wrong way. Yeah. Um, but he would never do that to me. He would never be like, we would just have a conversation about it, you know? And normally, normally I would feel worse about it than he would. <laughs> he would like make fun of me, you know, or like, 
you know, he trusts me enough to know what my intentions are and that I care and that I'm dedicated to him and his family and his community and to like lifting them up, you know? And that was the thing was that this person, in my opinion, was actually just after whatever they could get out of me by, by putting a certain kind of pressure on me. Right. And like, that's, that becomes like a, I mean, I'm thinking about what Todd has been writing about. Um, and that becomes like a personality and like a behavioral issue, like an individual issue. Yeah. Tata and I were like, we are friends, but we were close friends. Then we talked like multiple times a week and like Tata threw down and had my back in that time, you know, and I really do have to give Tata a shout out for that. Um, but it was very hard and it was very confusing and it, you know, it broke me like, yeah. And, you know, if people want to say, oh, you should have just launched the class, like, you know, what happened was, is I'm living in the woods. I don't have a house. I'm supposed to have a trailer, but I don't. I'm literally sleeping under a tarp in the woods and I live in the rainforest. So like everything I own is molding. Oh, you know? God. And everyone's like, you know, you should have been more prepared. Like I had a plan. I had a plan to have this influx of money that never appeared. Um, and so then the decision was made that I would build a cabin and my uncle came to help me build this cabin. He's a timber frame builder and a number of different things happened. But one of the things that we did was we put up a crowdfunder and we basically just said like, Hey, you know, these things fell through the trailer fell through and people started attacking me again, saying I'm too wealthy, asking me who owns the land. One of the people who asked this question of me on Instagram knew the answer And people were accusing me, they were saying, you're a landowner, you know, like you shouldn't be asking for help. I did not own this land. My husband did not own this land. It was owned by someone in his family, but it did not belong to me and it wasn't asset of his. So like, you know, now that we're separated, I'm not able to, nor would I try to take half of that piece of land. But, you know, the crowdfunder, So people were attacking my crowdfunder and basically saying that I'm too white and I'm too wealthy. And it's like, I'm literally in the woods without enough food. Like Mm -hmm. I'm exposed to the elements. I can't eat my, my social, my safety net, my financial safety net has disappeared because my mom can't help me. And, you know, I asked my dad for help and he said, no, he said, no. And my family, my mom and my brother both talked to him and they said, you really need to help her. And eventually he did. And there was a lot of complicated stuff around that. I feel simultaneously appreciative of him. But also the fact that he initially said no, and I'm like, so it was horrible. It was like, I'm living in the woods. You know, my community, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. has abandoned me. My friends have called me out. Now these people supporting my business have called me out. I'm living in the woods. I don't have a home. I don't have enough money to eat. And I asked my dad for help and he says no, even though he was fully capable of financially helping me, but he wouldn't. And so then eventually he did help me and I feel appreciative of that, but it was complicated, you know, because it wasn't like, I love you and you're not okay. So I'm going to help you. It was, it was horrible. Like I lost my business. I lost my worldview. I lost my friends and I was exposed to the elements. And as the time goes on, like we're building this cabin in September and we should have had the trailer there in August. Like we would have been fine if the trailer had been there in August. Uh, 
you know, I live in a place where it rains heavily. So like I said, everything is molding. I'm allergic to mold quite severely. And we're building this cabin and we're sleeping in our car. We're losing the car because we can't make car payments. You know, and all of this is coming in on me ostensibly for something I didn't do. Like, you know, I know now, you know, there's a lot of things I look back on it and I'm like, you know, like I said, I gave away 10% of my income before my expenses were taken off. You know, if I had saved some of that money and I'd had like some savings, if I had been less generous with people, I would have had more of a savings buffer. But I thought my class was reliable income. Um, you know, and the trailer falling through was just an accident. It was just an accident and it, but it was a serious accident because I went from having a house to no house. Mm -hmm. And I proceeded to have a complete mental breakdown. Like yeah. complete mental breakdown. Like I, I'm about five, three and normally I weigh like between 120 and 130 pounds. Like I usually have like a little bit of booty, you know, like I'm not a super like <laughs> super skinny person. Um, I was 108 pounds because I was living outside in the cold and I didn't have enough money to eat. And, you know, and my normal safety net was not there to help me. And one of the people who was there to help me you know, it's complicated because my dad did help me and I feel appreciative towards him for that. But I also feel like, you know, one of the things that was hardest about it for me was that I was out in the elements with no food and no water. Like, li like literally, we didn't have running water. We, have, we don't have power. We didn't have a wood stove installed until like Halloween. And it's cold where we are. Like it's cold in the air. And I'm really thin and I'm actively like suicidal. Like, I don't want to yeah. be alive at this point. Yeah. And, you know, my poor husband, you know, he was really trying to support me and whatever. We have our own issues. Like there's things that I feel frustrated towards him for. But what I will say is that what we went through affected him just as much as it affected me. And he watched me basically die on my feet, you know, like, yeah, I lost about 20 pounds. I was extremely thin. My mom was really worried about me. I, at one point I ripped a sweater off my body and didn't remember it. Like I was having emotional blackouts from stress. Um, I was envisioning myself drowning and it was comforting. Oh my God. I had, I had a plan to kill myself. Like I knew how I was going to do it. And I was going to do it in the town that I grew up in. And so it was really complicated because my husband wanted me to go spend time with my mom. And the last time I'd spent time with my mom, when both of us were not in a good place, we had fought a lot. So I didn't want to go. And eventually in the end, I did go spend time with my mom and my mom and I were in a way better place. And she totally... It, it, it actually completely changed our relationship and we're in a really, really, really good place now. Like my mom is my best friend, has my back unconditionally. 
but understandably I didn't want to go there because the last time I had been there, it had not gone well. And that was where I was going to kill myself. So I didn't want to go there. And I couldn't work. Like, what was I supposed to do? I couldn't go back to my business because people were harassing me and I'd lost all my writing jobs. And the work that I do is like, you know, the primary work that I do is I work with youth. And I work with youth who are experiencing a lot of complicated issues. So if I want to kill myself and I'm not eating and I don't have a house to like, you know, we we ended up building a cabin. It was a 10 by 12 cabin, but we didn't have enough money to finish it. So it didn't have inner walls. It was the same temperature as the outside on the inside of the cabin. And it was only like 120 square feet. So we don't have running water. We don't have power. Sometimes we don't have enough money. Like, you know, we would fight over how to spend small amounts of money. And, And it was not so simple as like, oh, just go get a job because how are you supposed to get a job? You know, like at one point we lost our car. And so we were walking to and from town with a wagon and our whole town was like, got so upset by this. Like someone gave us a car, which then we were able to like repay them you know, but it was like basic, like basic, basic, don't have your basics. Yeah. Like physiological basic needs. Yeah. Food, water, warmth, you know, and it's not, I can't sit here and say, oh, it's all this person's fault who called me out. Right. Like it was my Saturn return. And I think ultimately like I was meant It was also like beautiful. Like I was in the woods. A lot of the time I was there alone. Like there was a period of several months where my husband was working and his work situation was complicated because he wasn't being paid. Like he was gone a full-time amount of time, but he was only being paid a part-time amount of time for confusing reasons. But anyways, so I'm there on my own in the woods you know, surrounded by forests, there's ravens and bald eagles that live in this forest. And I'm microdosing mushrooms because that was something that really helped me out of my depression. And so I'm on a small amount of mushrooms. I'm using power tools in the woods. No one can like you. The one thing about this forest is like, you can scream at the top of your fucking lungs into this forest and no one can hear you. And which was dangerous though. Cause like, you know, I'm in the woods by myself using a chainsaw and nobody can hear me. <laughs> so if I chop my hand off, you know, what am I going to do? Like run down the hill to my neighbor's house, I guess. I don't know. So, but I was like, you know, we live on an Island and I would be on the ferry and routinely, I would imagine myself jumping off the ferry and drowning. Mm. And it was like, comforting to think about that you know and fucking awful yeah and it's not entirely this like okay I think one thing that I really want to state about this is that this is not me being like I'm white and I'm such a victim and like people who are racialized should just like be nicer to me (laughs) like right no no like there was a lot of circumstances that went into this like the fallout of this was like not entirely that person's responsibility a large part of it was my responsibility a large part of it was just like the circumstances of fate because I honestly think I had to be 
broken that deeply to break up with the social justice values that I cared about so much. Like, you know, even though I was conflicted about it for a long time, I wouldn't have given up those values. Like people treated me like shit on a variety of different occasions, but I was like, this is a part of the work. You know, I just got to learn to stand up in the face of this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just, at this point, I don't actually think that social justice should be that hard. I don't think it should be that degrading. <laughs> like, I don't think that, you know, I don't know. I don't think that you should have to suffer that much. <laughs> like, and yeah, like it, it was incredibly difficult. Like the only reason that I didn't kill myself was because I knew that it would be completely crushing to, especially my mom and my husband. And I became incredibly resentful, especially of my husband during that time, because I didn't want to be alive. And I became paranoid that he was going to call me out. Mm -hmm. Like, which he wasn't going to do. But, and, and because of this, I was not treating him well, because, you know, I'm in the woods, I'm hungry, I'm cold, my most basic needs are not met, my business and my plan for stability has been taken away from me. My mom can't support me, my dad can, but he's pretty much not choosing to unless someone really puts some pressure on him to do it and you know I just felt like no one fucking cared about me that was genuinely how it felt and you know like throughout all of this like my desire to be a part of the social justice world was because I cared so deeply about other people and about the injustices that they were experiencing in their life and now I'm experiencing really bad circumstances and no one is coming like I had to dig myself out of that hole it was awful and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemies <laughs> like right and so that that is your breakup with social justice that's what did it it's a dirty breakup here's the here's the 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 weird part about all of this like so in going through all of this so like i'm a many times over sagittarius right like if shit gets really difficult I'll run, like I'll move to somewhere else, I'll move on to another relationship, like, you know, whatever. I'm like charming, have a lot of skills, I'm smart, it's like I'm fairly resilient. Um, and I think in the process of doing that, there's been a lot of times in my life where I have loved something deeply and profoundly and I've just let it go so that I don't have to deal with the pain associated with that thing. Mm-hmm. Any examples of that in my life. And so in this situation, like, you know, the way I was describing it was I felt like one of, you know, those lizards that lose their tail. So the rest of their body will survive. I felt like I lost all of myself. So that some ghost version of me, (laughs) zombie version of me could survive. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I 
So I had to really come to terms with what parts of this worldview, because I felt so vulnerable to pain and attack and like, you know, cruelty. Like, I won't say, I'm not going to use words like harm and violence. Like I've used violence sometimes in this conversation because there were parts of it that like, but I think a more accurate way of talking about it is that it was cruel. It was yeah. cruel. It was a mob of people, many of whom had not paid for my class, were not in the class, had only absorbed my work for free, and were just coming for me. Not and just like attacking me as a person, like not actually like critically engaging with my work or anything like that, you know. And so I felt like I basically felt like I had to abdicate my love for for social justice and all this kind of stuff in order to like survive to like not subject myself to this kind of pain anymore and you know around this time like me and my husband have separated because we're fighting all the time and like understandably like he just can't take it anymore and neither can I. And I'm really mentally like not well. I'm still like, it was, it was really, I feel like one of the things I really want to say if he ever listens to this is that I'm very sorry to him for like the relational impacts of all of this, because I was hurt so badly that like, I couldn't trust him. And I resented him so much. Like I resented him because he wanted me to be alive. I resented him because he seemed happier than me. I resented him for so many reasons and it was like not fair to him. So I left and I was living with my mom and I was talking to my niece. And at this time, like my niece is starting to get into social justice activism. My niece is like a little mini copy of me in a lot of ways. And the wet Soatin protests are happening at this time. And my niece is talking to me about it and saying, you know, I don't have any adults to talk to about this. And I've been to the Unistoten camp like I've done I helped do a direct action like training on the bridge of the Unistoten camp and I and I'm debating to myself I'm like do I tell this to my niece and I did I told them and the look on their face made me realize that like first of all I don't want to die because I want to be here for them mm-hmm. and not in a way of like you know, with my mom and my husband, it was like, I'm not going to do this because I don't want to hurt them. Yeah. But this was like, I want to be here for you because I know that my niece is going to go through a process that's like this in their own way. Because everyone who goes into social justice, while it's like this, we're all going to be confronted with this stuff. Maybe not as intensely as I was. But I want to be there for them, you know, and people in my family have told me that, like, I'm nicer now, you know, Mm. I'm easier to be around. And, like, I wanted to be there for my niece because I recognize that my experience and my wisdom and the things I've gained, like, the deep truth that I have about this, like, and I'm very, very careful what I talk to them about, you know, like, I don't talk to them about overly adult things and I you know, I'm a youth worker, so I know, and I'm good at my job, so I know how to give someone an appropriate piece of information for where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, like I wanted to be there for them. But I also feel like, like this is who I am. Like I can't, you know, I'm in my thirties now. When I look at my twenties, like my twenties was doing activism, like, and not like I'm on a computer, like sharing memes. Like that was a part of it, but like on the street, getting arrested, teaching people how to get arrested, like radical shit, you know, like some of my friends have done amazing, incredible world changing activism. Like I am very blessed to be surrounded by some like amazing, amazing, amazing people. Um, it's who I am. Like, and so as much as I want, you know, there's a part of me that like wants to never be on the internet ever again, because it absolutely terrifies me that someone could just unibomb your life. (laughs) Like, and people will believe you just based on like the identity. And what makes me so angry about that is that it's like, we actually do need to believe people of certain identities about their experiences more. Like we need to be in a world where we give people that benefit of the doubt. And when you take advantage of that, just to hurt someone, like, I don't know what this person's motivation was. I really don't like, I don't know if they were just so traumatized that they were just trying to survive through like unthinkable scarcity, you know, but yeah. You know, my life now, I'm not going to go into like super big detail about it, but like I work in my community helping people who are severely marginalized and I am good at my job. I am told that on a regular basis. And a huge part of the reason for that is a, because I came up in a social justice world that like taught me certain core values that I still hold today about how to be a trustworthy person. Mm -hmm. to people who are marginalized in a different way from me, but also because I experienced something so fucking devastating, so humbling, you know, like one of the things that I can do, like I said, I work with youth. I can take a youth who doesn't trust anyone and get them to trust me in like under an hour. And the reason is because I'm able to level with them and say, you know, I'm not you. I don't understand what it's like to be you, but I do understand what it's like to be in so much pain that you don't want to be here anymore. And when that's how you feel, you don't scare me. Because I had to make that peace with myself in my heart to get through this. You know, so. Yeah. And I had to find a way to come back to myself to like not allow myself to be robbed of my humanity and my ethics by someone taking advantage of them Mm. multiple people taking advantage of them including people who were my friends Mm -hmm. you know and I'm not a perfect person and people have you know I say and do things that are controversial hurt people's feelings by accident whatever I'm a human being but like I am committed to trying to be a good person (laughs) like to be kind to be generous to like leave the world a better place than I entered it Mm -hmm. as much as I can from my own actions and I also feel like the reason I wanted to tell this story is not because you know I'm not even giving that many details about the person who like did this because I don't want people to mob this person you know like I want that person to like get what they need so that they don't feel the need to do that 
out of survival or whatever it is that's motivating them. Mm -hmm. And I also think that this story, like, lots of people talk about cancel culture and have critiques about cancel culture, but not a lot of people will actually say, like, this is what happened to me when I got canceled. Like, yeah, no, it's it's true. Almost everyone I know who's been, like, seriously canceled, like, almost all of us have become seriously suicidal oh yeah Mm -hmm. not like oh I hate myself today it's Tuesday and tomorrow I feel better like like like, thinking like plotting I had a plan Mm -hmm. I had a place I had a substance I had a means you know like I had a plan and I had this vision of myself like my ex partner he thought that it was like a vision from a past life because I do think that there's you know like I'm a witch I think that there's like whatever witch burning persecution like I do and I live in a place where my ancestors like settled this place like there's generations of my people and my partner is indigenous to this place like you know like I just think spiritually there's a lot in me of like reckoning ancestral trauma I do feel like I made peace with a lot of ancestral trauma through this and I had this vision and it was me in a white dress with really long hair and I was drowning. Like I was dead, floating in the water. And I would be underneath myself in the water looking up and I saw it so clearly. And when I felt like I just couldn't do it anymore, I would sit in a ball, you know, under a tarp or whatever and just vi- visualize this. And it was wow. so comforting to me. Wow. Like thinking about myself dead and floating and cold and no longer obligated to participate in the world was like my deepest comfort for months. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, you know, and I behaved in ways from that place that, you know, like another reason that I'm good at my job is because like, I don't judge people for losing their shit. People in my life who knew me then judge me very heavily for losing my shit. And I, you know, I'm trying to just let that go. But I also feel like I challenge you to live through what I lived through and not lose your shit. (laughs) (laughs) Impossible. Like, not possible. Yeah, like, you know, now it's, it's built into my rubric of like, who do I want to be? You know, I don't want to yell at people. I don't want to kick a hole in, like I kicked a hole in my, what is it? Like the glove compartment box of my truck. Holy shit. Cause I was so fucking frustrated and angry. I don't want to be that person. You know, I don't want to be I, like I said, I ripped a sweater off my body while screaming and didn't even remember it. Like I mm. lost my mind. Like I was re- like, I was re- like, but I also feel though, like, yeah, like, I don't know, man. I can just, I can see people going to like a dark place, doing dark things. I'm confronted with some fucking heavy shit in my work on a regular basis. And like, it doesn't phase me because it deepened my capacity to sit with people's pain. Cause I can sit with my own pain through all of this. Right. And it's not finished. Like I'm not the same person after all of this. Like I'm a writer and I can't write right now. 
Mm-hmm. Why is that? Uh, well, I, I'm in a freeze response where I feel part of the reason I wanted to tell this story on here is because I feel like this was so traumatizing to me that I needed to tell this story before I can move on to doing anything else. Like it yeah. feels like the road, like the writer's block is in the shape of this story, you know? Totally. Um, while simultaneously I don't want to be stuck on this story forever. Yeah. I also feel like I just don't trust my instincts the same way. I'm much more I'm just, you know, you know, like I said before, it used to be like, oh, you know, I wrote this letter to my mom, I'm gonna publish it. You know, like no time in the middle. And now I feel like I'm, you know, I've given myself years to process. This happened to me in 2018. Yeah. You know, it's been two and a half years that I've had to like process this before I feel like ready to really talk about it. Um, and now I'm like, I don't know whether a, one big part of me is like, I should go back to my old work and I should, you know, kind of pull it all together and revise it and publish it. And another part of me is like, yeah, but it's not really true to who you are now. And another part of me is like, I'm just going to get called out again. And I don't want to deal. Like I've had to rebuild my life. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's people that I know and more power to them to be powering through this. Right. But like they're experiencing horrible, horrible call outs. And they're like, you know, they basically like do not entertain it as an option to go offline. And like, I had to go offline because my cell phone disappeared. I had no power. I had no money. I like, I couldn't be online. So like, I was offline for like a year and a half. And I had to rebuild my life offline. And I like my life better now. Like I have real friends who I can really count on. And I have work that's really meaningful that I don't think is going to disappear because someone on the internet gets mad at me or tells a lie about me. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to like disrupt that. But ultimately, I think I'm scared of the power of my own voice because look at what happened to me I don't want to live through that again and it's scary to me that someone could could do that you know somebody people that I'm friends with people who I'm trying to be in solidarity with that they could just you know inflate or make up something that just isn't true yeah And, and, and doing that, we shouldn't do that to each other. (laughs) Like, you know, if you're gonna accuse someone of doing something, you better be in your reality, like trusting that your reality is right and true enough to know that that really is the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe that's controversial take, but like, I don't know. I think sometimes social justice world takes this view that like the only person who has been hurt is the person who's experienced harm and it's and the person who's done the harm like doesn't have feelings or something and that's not true like even if I had done that if I had stolen her work and published it I still don't think that I deserved to I I would have deserved to experience that no I don't even not something I would ever do (gasps) right yeah 
And you know, what's amazing, like, I mean, this story is just devastating. And like I said in the beginning, like annihilation, like this was complete annihilation. Um, But I think the most salient part of what you've shared so far is that you've experienced this, you've come through it. And yet it's like you have a, uh, you're refusing to let this situation um, separate you from your values. And ultimately, like, that is what, not ultimately, but that's part of what's important is that this awful, horrific thing happened, yet you haven't abandoned the, the values and the, I don't know if morals is the right word, but what got you into this ideology or this culture or whatever in the first place you're not abandoning those simply because not simply but because you were hurt this much i think that's really amazing <laughs> like that that's well, I, I don't think really it's hard a because i can't be someone i'm not mm-hmm. like one of the things i feel really rem- like okay so i live in a town where I moved here shortly after being called out. Mm-hmm. So this town that I live in now has only seen me from like my worst moment. And like, I've been through some shit in life, you know, like really difficult shit, which I'm not going to like list off, but this was definitely fucking up there. Real, like, war- like I didn't know that depression could feel this bad. <laughs> like it was, and I've experienced depression, like, most of my life, like, since my childhood, you know? Yeah. And it was next level, like, you know? Um, but, like, I feel like it's not a choice, like, because these people in my life who, na- to me, I feel like I'm a different person. Like, my mom, my family members, you know, people around me, like, you know, my mom has even said to me, she's like, you know you're still the same person. You're just like, you're softer, you're nicer, you're kinder, you're more patient. Cause I'm not, you know, one of the things about the social justice rules is that it's an expectation that you have to enforce the rules on everyone around you all the time. And it doesn't matter if you're harsh because you're right. Like oppression is more harsh than your argument or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, it just made everyone around me like scared of me, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, I wanted coming out of this to, I really did just kind of want to not, you know, I'm in a different place now where I don't relate to it in the same way. Like I, like, you know, my partner believes some stuff where I'm just like, what, (laughs) you know, like I love him very much and he takes really amazing care of me, but wow, man, like my younger self, there's no way I could have dated someone with some of the opinions he has, like his opinions blow my mind sometimes you know (laughs) um but I'm more tolerant to it now Mm -hmm. right and it's funny because you know these people in my life now like my boyfriend for example like was describing me to me recently Mm -hmm. and he was like you just care so much about like everyone around you and how like every action is tied to the bigger picture and whatever and just and I'm listening to this and I'm like how does that still come through? Because I really feel like that part of me got like annihilated or whatever. But And what I realized from him saying this to me is that like, that's just who I am. Yeah. Right? Like this, yeah. this call out, like, and I can't, 
the reason I wanted to die was because I didn't want to be me anymore. I didn't want to care so much about other people. Mm -hmm. You know, like that desire, that caring about other people is what got me into this situation in the fucking first place. And if I could just not care so much about other people and about the world and about humanity and all this kind of stuff, like, you know, and my mom says to me all the time, like, you know, I am a smart, strong, fierce person. I think like I intimidate people somewhat easily without even trying, whatever. My mom is always like, you know, you're so much more sensitive than people realize. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm a, whatever, I'm like a strong, bold, whatever kind of person, but like I am like really sensitive. Totally. You know, and I have PTSD and I have some deep rejection runes around my bullying and feeling like my dad just doesn't love me, to be completely honest. Like, you know, and whatever, like yeah. various different things. And like this just, you know, it's hard to describe what it's like to have hundreds of people just digitally kick you while you're down. You know, like comments like, I always thought she sucked or whatever, like literally. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those. Those are the weirdest ones to me. Um, I those I never are... liked her in my group. Why are you in my group and you never liked me? Why are you hate following me? Like, <laughs> don't hate follow people. That's toxic. I don't even like the phrase toxic. I I I think that the phrase toxic is toxic, but that is toxic behavior. Like, don't hate follow people. Unfollow. <laughs> so this is like I guess off the record I feel like we're coming to like a natural ending place do you feel that way yeah I wonder do you feel like there's anything else I like don't think so I mean so the last question that I'd ask is um you know for people that are listening to this because I know I've had people on so far um who have had some kind of breakup with leftism um or social justice culture uh I know you know Clementine talked about cancel culture and so you know I know that people listen to this podcast in part because they're going through that particular um ideological shift and um I'm wondering if you have any words of wisdom for them I mean I think that I think that your story is one like I think you maybe have said this but your story is the one that everyone's afraid of happening. (laughs) And, um, and because of that, I, I feel like I'm curious to hear what, you know, what you have to say to people that are listening to this. Yeah. Well, there's a few things. It is true. I am like, you know, my, uh, my story is the thing that people are scared of and that's why so far that I've seen maybe this has happened the internet is a big place but I haven't seen anyone talk about being canceled like directly like I've, I've heard people talk about the impacts and you know but like per a personal story I haven't really seen much of that 
there's some amazing work happening around cancel culture. And I think people have their various boundaries about what they are and are not willing to talk about. And I think those are all valid, but I wanted to tell this story this way so that people could like see, like, I'm not trying to be right mm-hmm. here. Like, I'm just trying to like expose like some vulnerability around this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're, it is true. I also want to say before I answer your question, which I want to answer that, like, I also really need to thank you because like, we have never met in person, but you were like, I honestly don't know what I would have done without you, Molly. Like, like you, well, first of all, like, you know, the other people who were there and I'm not trying to detract from the fact that like, there were people like my ex-husband, I feel like, gave a lot to trying Mm -hmm. to help me heal from an impossible situation he's like not in my life anymore right and I'm not blaming him for that he has his own boundaries and his reasons and he needs his time to heal he's not in my life anymore you are still here like you've been here this whole time (laughs) (laughs) you know and you know even giving me the space to tell this story is like not easy so I think yeah one of the things that I would say is that like finding true like friendships and relationships that like really are solid that matters more than the identity rules Mm. like and I said that to my niece like my niece is going in is just gone into high school and I said to them you know going from elementary school to high school which in Canada is you know from 12 to 13 they're really excited because they're like, I'm going to go into the school and like, there's going to be like, there's a club about gender and there's a club about the environment. And I'm like, oh my God, miniature me, geez, <laughs> really care about all the same issues. Anyways, so what I said to them was, you know what? I'm really excited for you. I'm really excited for what you're going to do. Your passion inspires me on like a daily basis. Like my niece, their first protest was like over a hundred thousand people. Like wow. I've never been in a protest that big. Yeah. And they convinced, like, tons of people from their school, their parents, like, amazing. Like, so amazing. Like, I love working with youth for that reason. Like, so inspiring. Mm -hmm. But I said to them, one thing I want you to remember is that you're going to meet these people and you're going to feel, they're going to feel like home. But you've got to remember that, like, every relationship is subject to failure and challenges and conflict. And it hurts more when you don't think that's going to happen because you believe the same like ideas about the world because you have this idea that like these people who are like you like one of the things that I find really funny is like though I live on this tiny island and like I am friends with people and like dating people where I'm just like younger me would be like what are you doing like I can see my niece struggles with that a little bit being like why are you doing this like why are you being more like stringent about who you build relationships with But like, you don't get to safe relationships by trying to find people who agree with you on everything. Mm. (laughs) Like, diversity of thought, diversity of tactics, like being able to listen to people and like connect to people, like let people surprise you. Like the social justice world and and academia especially is so much about critiquing and problematizing and like seeking out what's wrong with someone. And if you switch your view to be like, okay, but what's right about you? Where are you resilient? Where are you dedicated to like caring about people? Like 
you know, humans are a lot better, in my opinion, this is typical Sagittarius, whatever saying this, I actually think (laughs) that we are better than we, than we give each other credit for. Like there's so much like humans are a bane on the world and we all need to die and we're eco-toxic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, no, like, I just don't believe that. Like, I think humans are resilient and we make mistakes and we're trying to figure things out. And if we can just make room for what is without trying to be so perfectionist, like the social justice view can be, it's so ironic because we're so much about hating whiteness, but whiteness has a lot to do with like purity and singularity and superiority and all these things. And it's like, but that is what we're doing in this mm-hmm. toxic version of this worldview. Like, oh, you're not perfect. You're garbage. You're totally a part of the problem. And it's like, I think it really, you know, if we focus, maybe this is the woo, whatever manifestation part of me. If we only <laughs> focus on the ways that we're the problem, we are only going to continue to be the problem. We have to be able to see our resilience, our strength, our kindness, our compassion. Like we have to be able to focus on those things to help those things grow. And Mm -hmm. it's easier to do that in relationships that involve actual trust, you know? And one of the things I would also say, again, maybe this is a highly controversial take, but I actually think that, you know, I've met people in this last sort of wave of my life who believe stuff that I think is just whack, you know, like, it's just not what I, I'm just like, I don't agree. But what I can see underneath of it, and this is what I think it's important to speak out in people is that a lot of people can see that the world is, you know, painful or difficult or challenging or changing or daunting or whatever. And if you, if you listen to what's underneath, you know, like, okay, I'm not a Trump supporter. I get actively triggered when I like my partner sometimes will listen to this stuff on the internet and I'm like, this person totally supports Trump. Why are you listening to this? You know, like it, <laughs> I find it really upsetting and triggering and that's the main thing we get into fights about. But what I realized, because he's a very like anti-government, anti-establishment, like these people, the reason he is listens to them is because he relates to their attitude of like, we're taking it down, we're anti-institution, all this kind of stuff. Like, I don't believe. I don't agree with QAnon. I think that shit's bizarre. But I also think that these people who are believing this stuff, like spiritually, we have more common ground and we're not gonna get through this by hating each other into civil war. Like we have to, like we need to be able to eat together. We need to be able to share food. We need to be able to ask questions. We need to take care of ourselves. Like, and we need to start doing our activism from a place of, feeding what we love you know instead of be instead of feeding off of each other or feeding the things that we hate you know and and I don't and honestly I don't have all of the answers but I think one of the biggest things for me was recognizing that I am not solely responsible for the fate of the world Mm -hmm. I can't Mm -hmm. de-elect Trump I can't undo climate change But what I can do, me personally, is I can love the land so much that everyone who comes into contact with me can feel how much I love it. And I can teach the people around me how to use the plants around them to keep them safe in different ways and things that they can eat. You know, like we, when all the COVID stuff started happening, we were temporarily nervous, like, like, what if we're going to lose like our food system, you know? And 
it was amazing because all these people were coming up to me and being like, so what can you eat around here? <laughs> you know, like wanting to know <laughs> yeah. the plants and the mushrooms and stuff, right? And it's like, so you just got to figure out, it's like, what is it that you love? And like, do that and share that with other people. And it's okay to say no and to have needs and to like, you know, to ask for money for what you do sometimes, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. and it's okay to be confused and it's okay to, to, to fall into an ideology that you think is giving you all the right answers that feels comforting and then change your mind. Like it's good to change your mind. And every time you change your mind, you should remember the version of you from before who felt like you were right about something and try to have some empathy for that person who's in that place now. Because it doesn't yeah, matter, tough. like being right, being right, like trust me it's hard for me now like I look at some of the cancel culture stuff people in my life you know who you know one of the people who was involved in that call out who was my friend like I was kind of a big part of what introduced her to that world and you know not her they are like deep down in that world now hating me whatever and I'm just like this is partially my fault because I introduced you to this way of being right so yeah I mean I could ramble on about this forever like you it's the world is imperfect and it's confusing and it's scary but there's a lot of good there you know and there's a lot of beauty and there's beauty you know like one of the things I really wanted to come across like in this story is that like as much as it was like hard and it was dark like there was an incredible beauty in being in that forest alone in so much deep sorrow literally praying to the sky being like I don't know how to get through this like please help me figure out how to get through this like finding myself through doing mushrooms and talking to the birds and like slowly building my way out of this like there's there's beauty in that sorrow and there's beauty in that struggle and like we have to be able to recognize that in each other like it's not Like, you know, can I recognize that in the person who lied about me? I'd like to be able to do that. If you'd like to hear more from Poplar, you can follow them on Instagram at Poplar Rose. I'll link that and some of their writing in the show notes below. If you'd like to support the podcast on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash outofthewoodspod, or just follow the podcast on Instagram at outofthewoodspod. I'm your host, Molly. Thanks for listening.